Hello, and welcome to the Foothills Deeper Pod, a podcast for all of us looking to bring more love and more courage into our daily lives. I'm Reverend Elaine, one of your hosts, and it's so good to be here with you today. You know, there has been so much change over the past few years, and so many of us are still just feeling weary and longing for a sense of stability to reclaim our agency. And yet, the future remains uncertain and uncontrollable. And this is just the nature of the future. And change remains a core part of being human. And in all of our lives, there are always going to be thresholds, both those thresholds that we can see and also those that we can't see yet but are headed our way anyway. And with this podcast today, we want to bring you good news. We can learn to get into this experience. We can learn to relax and make friends with change rather than fighting just to get through it. And we can remember that change is not just a place of loss, but it's also a place of joy and abundance. And we don't have to do this spiritual work alone. So today's episode kicks off our worship series all about change. And today we are specifically delving into the doorway effect, the phenomenon of how humans forget things as they move through a doorway. So, for example, have you ever walked into the kitchen only to realize that you have completely forgotten why you went there in the first place? So that's the doorway effect. And in Reverend Gretchen's sermon in today's episode, we will see that the doorway effect has some powerful lessons to teach us about living with change. But first, let's begin our time together with a reflection from Foothills member Doug Powell that brings us uh, into standing in front of a very particular doorway, the plexiglass door in the back of an airplane thousands of feet off the ground. I know why people jump out of perfectly good airplanes. Actually, as any skydiver would say, perfectly good airplane, there's no such thing. I am among the very few who have thrown themselves at the ground and missed, or at least sufficiently delayed the reunion. Most of my 70 or so jumps began the same way. A group of us gearing up for the adventure putting on heavy-duty harnesses, parachute packs, altimeters, helmets, goggles, etc. Next, we load into the plane. We sit down, buckle up, and the plane starts moving. Everyone's really pumped up. We're cheering, high-fiving. People are saying things like, surf's up! Airplane is a buzz of excitement, bravado, and chatter. As the engines roar, we leave the ground and the scenery begins to recede in the window. About 10 minutes into our slow ride to altitude, a sort of dark boredom has set in. Veterans are usually napping, leaving the rookies oh so alone with their thoughts. The ground continues to get smaller and smaller as the altimeter needle winds inexorably upwards. At some point, the pilot turns and confides something to a nearby veteran who loudly yells, two minutes, with the, which a handful of voices echo. The plane wakes up 
and starts buzzing with activity again. All of us are doing last minute gear checks, planning exits, and getting ready. And then someone goes to the back of the plane and slides open the plexiglass door to the outside. The plane instantly fills with blustery wind and a hint of airplane exhaust. This is the moment that things get very real for people. This is also our opportunity to see a phenomenon my friends and I have come to call door face. It looks something like this. Here, Doug cuts to a montage of freaked out faces, eyes bugged out, looking totally stunned. It is this moment where you realize two things. What you imagine this might be like has no relationship to what it's actually like. And that you are committed. After all, skydivers say, when you get up to that door, no sounds an awful lot like go. Near the door, a little red light turns green, indicating that we're over our landing area. And people start leaving the airplane. With the airplane literally bouncing like a diving board with each departure. Everyone then moves one notch closer to that door and all of its terrible unknownness. Then the person in front of you vanishes and it's suddenly your turn. You enter the doorway, looking out into the incomprehensible vastness of the open sky, the wind buffeting you and the ground looking less high up and more simply unreal. One, two, three, and you're in free fall. Irrevocably committed. There are a lot of things that you could do at this point. Scream, howl, claw at the air, flap your arms, maybe turn and cast a longing glance back at the airplane. Sadly, none of these things will really change your situation. Scream all you want. The wind will only dry out your mouth. As it turns out, the most aerodynamically stable body position in freefall is achieved through relaxing. When you truly relax in freefall, your body naturally assumes the shape of an arch. Until you arch, you're unstable, control is difficult. After arching, it becomes stable, even graceful. Nothing you are likely to imagine could have prepared you for this. For 60 seemingly eternal seconds, you are simply in the sky, bathed in wind, with no churning stomach and no visual sense of velocity. You can see the horizon in every direction. The luminous Kobernhawk poetically described it as looking straight into the eye of God. Relaxed and with your eyes open, this is important, it is a profoundly beautiful peaceful, humbling, and enlivening experience. It reminds me of when our son Owen was born. I freely admit to a little door face. Things happened much faster than the Lamaze class had led me to expect. I feel like we would have done a lot better with an extreme Lamaze class. And things got very real in the delivery room for all of us. 
But with a baby's cry, we were out of the airplane and into a new paradigm. And so was he. The only question was how to respond. This is always the question, isn't it? Life is filled with these transitions. We're always moving from one world into another. How do we respond? And most importantly, is our response aligned with our fears or aligned with our love? I suppose we can always howl, claw at the air, flap our arms, trying somehow to fly back up into that airplane. Or we could take the more graceful path. Accept, relax, arch, and appreciate the humbling beauty around, between, and within us. In every moment, this choice is ours. Friends, I assert that this community has already exited the airplane. None of us have been here before, facing this specific transition. But on the other hand, we've all been here before because we've all experienced transition in our lives. May we always proceed forward, together and aligned with our love. Amen. So it was a normal, regular work day almost 17 years ago. Carrie and I, my partner Carrie and I, we, we both had really busy jobs. I was the director of a large in-home care agency, and she was a community organizer in Denver. I was at my desk when an unfamiliar number came through, which I usually sent those to voicemail, but for some reason that day, I decided to answer it. It was a social worker from the Denver Department of Human Services. She said, uh, we have a two-year-old, I mean, two-day-old baby girl at the hospital, and she's ready to come home. Would you be interested in picking her up? You'd need to be here by two. It was 10. I said, uh, I think I better call my partner first. So she gave me a little more information, and then I started doing everything I could to try to reach Carrie. Um, this was a few years before cell phones were everywhere. I think she had one, but it was like a flip phone. She usually left it at, you know, somewhere other than where she was. So it was like one of those old school scrambles. I called her work's receptionist, and then I called a coworker, and I sent her email after email, just hoping she would check it. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, I reached her and told her everything, including that we'd need to be there by two, and it was by then 11. We had in, I just feel like it's a little loud. Um, we had by then, uh, some way, we had in some ways prepared for this moment. We had gone through the process. It wasn't like they just called us out of the blue. Um, we'd gone through the process of becoming foster adoptive parents. Um, so we'd been waiting for a call like this. It's just that the call that we were expecting was not for an infant because they told us, you like, that just doesn't happen. So we had prepared ourselves for a three or four year old sort of, uh, toddler. So we had like a little bed and we had some books and a few toys. And we also anticipated having a few, like a little lead time where you'd get to know the child, they'd get to know you, and before they'd come home. And by a little lead time, I mean like weeks, not hours. 
It was basically absurd to imagine that we would be picking up a baby in a few hours. We were obviously not ready, and we didn't even know what we were not ready for. Everything, everything that we had ever known was about to change. And all we knew in that moment is that we were an absolute yes. So Carrie called the social worker back and negotiated for four, because obviously we need to go to Target. And I then went to my boss and said, I'm, I'm having a baby. And he said, right now? And I said, right now. And so then we, we were standing in the Target aisle, and we were just, I wish we had, like later could have a camera of us because we were just like this. Uh, like the door face. Um, and eventually a woman came up the aisle as we were standing there and she was just, just, she looked at us and she had, she had a baby in her cart and a little toddler in, um, along the cart. And she said, you look lost. And we were like, uh-huh. <laughs> and so we explained to her what was going on. We're like, we have to be there by four. <laughs> and she asked us, um, she said, so how, how big is the baby? Cause she wanted to help us figure out what diaper size we would need. No, no idea. No, we're like, how big is a baby? So she, uh, she guided us through all of the choices, blankets, diapers, bottles, formula. Sometimes I hear about the research people do when they pick like new car seats. And I think back on how Carrie and I basically like looked at the little, uh, we looked at the target information and then picked the one that was the cutest that we could afford. And I think all y'all new parents, you're gonna be just fine. <laughs> By four o'clock that afternoon, we were taking the elevator up to labor and delivery at the hospital, and we were brought to the tiniest baby wrapped in a little donated blanket. One of our, the nurses saw our faces, and she was like, first time? And again, we're like, she was like, be right back. Meanwhile, the other nurse, she just put the baby in our arms, and her big black eyes just stared back at us like we had any clue. That we, what we were doing. Any clue about this change that we were already irrevocably committed to, even though on the inside we were obviously all dry mouths and silent screams. So the other nurse, she came back, she was carrying a, a, a couple of diaper bags of donated formula and diapers. We ended up, actually, that was the diaper bag we used for at least the first six months. And before we knew it, they were waving us on our way, and we got in the elevator, and we walked out of the doors of the hospital, and nobody even stopped us. No one even checked our car seat, by the way, which is a thing I've heard they do. It was obviously iffy. I'm not sure it, we figured that out for the next three months. In those first few days, we thought every call that came through our house was the department saying that they were coming to get her, that it was a mistake, or that the birth mom had figured things out. Every breath she made felt like a leap out of an airplane that we just had to accept over and over that we were in it, that it was happening, that we were her moms in that moment, whatever would come next. The only choice we had was whether we were gonna face that moment with fear or with love. And to be honest, in a lot of, of those moments, my answer was fear. I mean, 
why wouldn't it be? We were so scared most of the time to be her moms or to not be her moms, to be bad moms, to be not enough, to be too much. We didn't let anybody buy us anything for at least the first three months. We were so scared about what it would mean to have to give it away. So it was less a choice about fear and love than it was a practice and a commitment to just keep showing up and try to look for the love that was already there, looking for us, ready to partner with us and helping us to find our way. Now, I have told this story many times, obviously, in my life. It's a formative story. And usually I tell it as if the, once the adoption was finalized, which um, it was 13 months later, that as if at that moment the change was done, security and safety and predictability and normal life returned. But here we are almost 17 years later, and I am here to say that in a lot of ways, that overwhelming feeling of being absolutely unprepared, the door face, never really went away. <laughs> and not just because two years later we got a similar call and faced a similar moment for the four-pound baby boy that became my now five-foot-ten, 14-year-old son, Joseph. Over these years, there has always been something coming at us that we are not prepared for. Sometimes small, but other times like earthquakes. And all of them offering us this extremely annoying choice of whether we're going to respond with fear or with love. Now, some of this, I have to tell you, and I did tell her I was saying this, that in some ways this is particular to my daughter, Gracie, Graciela. We chose her name. She was named Baby Girl at the hospital. At a certain point, we decided we couldn't keep calling her Baby Girl, so we named her Graciela. And we, we picked that because we wanted to recognize the ways that this was this mysterious gift we had received that we did not make ourselves. Grace. But some of it is Gracie's, Gracie's personality in all of this. She does not. She's just one of those people count myself among them too, that just does not take the simple path. That's not her way. And also, Gracie has had to face a lot of challenges that are not of her own making either. But it is also true about parenthood more generally. Just when you think you got it figured out, there's something else. And even if your kids are totally typical, which, what does that even really mean? Especially post-pandemic, I've started to realize how many kids and adults, how much we are all carrying higher levels of anxiety, depression. And for many of us, our brain processing literally changed for many reasons. Life today is filled with these next level changes. For parents and for all of us, life is filled with so many changes, including, I want to acknowledge the existential threat of climate change that we are all now forced to learn how to live with. So much so that I think we need to say life is not filled with changes, life is change, both individually and collectively. 
In her new book, Trusting Change, the subtitle is Finding Our Way Through Personal and Global Transformation, Unitarian Universalist minister Karen Herring looks at the collective version of change. We so often talk about change as something we each individually experience, but she talks about collective experience, saying when we experience change on a personal level, its disturbances will bounce back from changes happening on shared community or global levels so that it amplifies any change we encounter and vice versa. It's one of the reasons the last few years have felt so intense because we have this big global change happening, but it doesn't mean that somehow our personal lives are just somehow immediately stable. Any personal change that we've gone through is set against those global changes, and then those things work together, amplifying and echoing each other so that the impact is so much greater. So for example, many people I know in my own life and in the church had relationships come to an end during the pandemic. Well, that happening during any time is a huge change to navigate. But ending relationships while also experiencing an isolating global pandemic alongside climate change and an attempted coup on the US Capitol, I don't know, that isn't just huge anymore. It becomes catastrophic. What Herring offers, though, is that rather, this is a quote from her, rather than becoming overwhelmed by these echoes or shutting them out, we can make use. We can make use of change on one level to participate in shaping change occurring on other levels. Because the skills needed for healthy participation in global change are directly related to the skills needed for shaping change in our intimate lives and the other way around. So we can move to the rhythms of change reverberating at any one level, and they will support our participation at other levels. Even more importantly, this recognition of the echoing of personal and collective change allows us to remember that we are not alone in these experiences. As she says, just as the imaginal cells in the chrysalis must reassemble in a larger organism to complete their transformation and emerge as a butterfly, the most transformative changes we face as humans require realignment and, and relationships of interdependence with others. We need others' observations to widen our experiences, our perspective, their gifts to supplement our own abilities, and their assistance to help us cross the threshold that will be too high, too terrifying, or too bewildering to traverse on our own. Sort of like that encounter with the merciful angel in Target that day. The change in front of us was all of those things, too high, too terrifying, too bewildering, but with her guidance and then later the support of that nurse that brought us the diaper bag, and then over and over, over the years, the insight and care of so many others, the changes become more manageable, one exhale and inhale at a time. Now, I have to confess, when we started to talk about this series, the life-changing series, I felt in myself a lot of resistance. After all of the changes of the last few years, I feel, I have to say, I feel really ready to be done with talking about thresholds or the in-between. 
or even the journey. Like, aren't we there yet? Because in some ways we are. I mean, we worked about 15 years to dig that hole out there, and now it's dug. Which means we are still in change, but we aren't in the same changes. And it is important to recognize this, the ways that we are not in the same place that we were. Literally a year ago, right now, right this second, we were gathering in person for the very first time in 18 months. And we were very clumsy and not even yet singing together. Here we are, definitely singing. The projector is mostly working. It was not then. We even have these cool new cameras installed. We are finding our way. We are not yet done with our changes, and we are already changed. This recognition reminds us that although change involves a kind of loss, it does not require a loss of everything. Every hard-earned skill, every hard-fought insight, every change we experience before the one we're facing gets to accumulate in us, in our lives, and we get to carry these things with us which is not how we usually think about change. Usually when we face a change, we experience it like when we go to the kitchen after having been in the office. Literally, this happened while I was writing this sermon. I was having a snack while I was working, and then the snack started to get a little messy. And so I decided to go to the kitchen to get a napkin. I got to the kitchen, and then I saw a soda, and I thought, oh, I'm really thirsty. And so I got the soda, I went back to my desk, and there was my messy snack which I had no napkin for, so I had to go back and try again. This is what's called the doorway effect. It is a psychological phenomenon, just not like an aging, busy brain. That's also a factor, but there actually is a a true biological effect that's where you go through a doorway and it causes you to forget. It's a true thing. There's studies. And it is a very cool feature of our brain, actually, because we cannot keep all memories all the time. The brain has to come up with processes that decide to purge memories so it makes room for the new memories. And something about a doorway triggers your brain to purge. Like new room, new you, basically. It's very cool and it's also obviously wrong. It's a, it's a brain misfire. Because purging memories just in those small space is literally wrong, and it's also a misfire when it happens in life's big transitions, too. Because it can leave us connected with what we're losing in that change, but fail to connect us with what we get to bring with us. It can fail to help us remember that we get to bring every hard-earned lesson and skill that we've learned. Because while it is that maybe the first time we're exiting this airplane, it's not our first airplane. We know things now we didn't know before. And we have new company and new cells we've grown and we know new songs and we've made new dreams. As Herring writes, from the deep storage of our own experience, we can often call up wisdom that will guide us through a current passage of loss or change. As we do this, we will be weaving our past into our future and creating a design that reflects the larger wholeness of our lives. 
To better illustrate what she means, Herring recalls a passage from Sandra Cisneros' short story called Eleven. It's, this is a quote from the, char- the main character, who is 11 years old, who says, What they don't understand about birthdays and what they never tell you is that when you're 11, you're also 10 and 9 and 8 and 7 and 6 and 5 and 4 and 3 and 2 and 1. And when you wake up on your 11th birthday, you don't feel 11 at all. You feel like you're still 10. And you are. Underneath the year that makes you 11. Because the way you grow old is kind of like an onion. Or like rings inside a tree trunk. Or like my little wooden dolls that fit one inside the other each year inside the next one. Like a tree trunk, we add new layers of being as we live through changes, where each one of the changes is like a, the, the, where it be, allows the trunk of our lives to be marked by another concentric circle wrapped around what came before. We are changing and we are already changed. And with each turning, we become more of ourselves. And because this change is not just individual but also collective, it means we can draw on our pa- not just our own individual past experience, but on a greater collective wisdom and strength. So that even if we have not personally encountered a specific change before, someone in the great interdependent web has. And there is wisdom in our collective body. Wisdom we can draw on, including wisdom from our ancestors, so that change can be a collective experience of memory and hope, where we feel ourselves a part of the great thread of life linked in the common constancy of change. We have been through so much in these years, and we are already changed, which means there's a lot of wisdom among us to mine and a lot of growth to distill and to choose with intention what we want to carry with us and how, so that even in the biggest leap and the greatest change, we can keep finding ways to move through it all with love. May it be so, and amen. My friends, Whatever you are moving through in your life right now, may you be guided by love as you swim to the other side. You are in good company. Keep joining us on Sunday mornings. Keep tuning into the podcast over the coming weeks for more inspiration for navigating change in our lives. I'm so grateful that you made time to join us for this week's episode of the Foothills Deeper Pod. If you have a moment, it would mean a lot to us if you could leave a positive review on Apple Podcasts. If there's anyone in your life who you think would resonate with the big questions we're wrestling with over here, please do send them a link. Spread the word. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I'm so glad you joined us.